Hey everyone, welcome back to the Missio podcast. Uh, we have been in this series for a while now that we have been calling What If Jesus Was Serious About the Church? And this is a question that we're asking really for the rest of this year. And as we look at to, to kind of answer that question, we're using the lens of church as family uh, to help us better understand what that means and what it means to be a family uh, together as a church. And there's just so many tangible, very actionable, and highly practical ways that we can live as a family together. And we've talked about several of them, from things like generosity and our role in the care and encouragement of college students, and then our role as spiritual guides and people who are together helping grow and develop our children. And so today I want to kind of talk about how a church that is family will serve together. And that's kind of what we're wanting to look at, this idea of servanthood. And so as we get started, I just want to give a definition of servanthood that I feel like Scripture reveals to us. Uh, and just just so that it's kind of in the forefront of our minds as we go throughout this, this teaching. But to me, service, servanthood, serving others is about Jesus' followers allowing the tove of God, the best of heaven, to flow through us into the lives of the people around us for their good. And so I just want to say that one more time as we get started. To me, service, servanthood, serving others is about Jesus's followers allowing the tove of God, the best that heaven has to offer, to flow through us into the lives of the people around us for their good. And really, to me, any conversation about servanthood should always start with Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And so I want to read that as we get started. It says, If then there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any partnership in the Spirit, any tender affection and sympathy, then make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain or empty conceit, which is a really important phrase that we're going to look at a little bit later. But in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so this is a passage that we've used a lot at Missio. And I just want to see, I just want you to see a couple really important things kind of right off the bat. First and foremost, our example of servanthood and serving comes from Jesus's cosmic example of service towards all people. And second, servanthood and service is inherently about the other person. It very simply just cannot be about yourself. I mean, look at what's, uh, what it says in verse, in verse three, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or, or empty conceit. And so this idea of service, being a servant, servanthood is all about the other person and then following Jesus's example of lifting them up for their good. So there's kind of a popular leadership idea that has been floating around for a long time now. And it was actually coined by a businessman in the 1970s named Robert Greenleaf. And I'm sure you've heard this idea before, but this idea is simply called servant leadership. And so you may have 
good feelings about that term or bad feelings about that term, but this is something that was around in the business world that the religious world caught on to pretty quickly after Greenleaf coined it. And in some ways, this posture of leadership is an incredibly positive thing. It's great to shift the way that people you know, lead from being authoritarian to being more servant-like. But in other ways, it simply doesn't quite reach the full intent of Jesus' call to servanthood that he actually lived and taught. And so just first and foremost, what is this? The idea of servant leadership was built out of a desire to shift this reality that a lot of leadership hinged on the carrot and stick method. You guys understand what that means. But leadership quickly devolved into just simply being leadership by stick alone, almost no carrot at all. And Greenleaf saw this as actually having surprise, the inverse effect of what leadership was meant to do, which was primarily to help workers succeed and have subordinates become highly motivated to achieve results for the organization or the leader that they were working for. And so again, this was around for a while, and and this idea of servant leadership was actually adopted in the Christian world and utilized by countless leaders to motivate their churchgoers to achieve results for the church, to give more and to work better for the church. And and I realize this is kind of a one-dimensional way of describing this, and I just want to acknowledge kind of on the front end that, that there are countless people who live their lives in service to others in the exact way that we're about to describe. But this idea of servant leadership within churches has taken a bit of a negative hit over the past couple of decades, simply because I think of the way that it has been used to manipulate people into doing more and more and to giving more and more well beyond their capacity or what is healthy or even sustainable. And, and I think this honestly has led to a surge in what I'm sure you all have heard before, this idea of burnout in churchgoers just around the country. And people are just kind of simply walking away, feeling exhausted, overused, and undercared for. And yes, I realize this is not like the quite the, the like the happy-go-lucky start to a conversation about being a family that serves together that you were kind of hoping for. But I think any time that we begin a conversation about things like service and serving and servanthood in churches, we need to acknowledge the way in which those ideas have been warped and twisted to be something that they never were intended to be. And the reason this idea of servant leadership has so often been warped is because deep within our humanity exists what I was just kind of coining this week, the, the Peter problem, the disciple Peter and what he kind of carried within his, one of his issues. You know, the disciples are honestly a great window peering into the nature of our humanity, meaning the inherent quirks and shortcomings of the disciples are a really great reflection into the quirks and shortcomings of basically all people, from things like just bad tempers to being a little too fiery and, you know, wanting to nail people like James and John uh, when, when, Jesus was slighted by the Samaritans and James and John are like, hey, Jesus, can I, you know, just call down fire from heaven just to burn everybody up? And Jesus is like, whoa, man, ease up there, pump the brakes. But to other things, just like physical disabilities, differences in political alignment. Remember that Simon was a zealot. He was essentially a political mercenary. To things like having humble occupations that barely make ends meet or really great occupations that make Lots and lots of money. Like Matthew, he was a tax collector, so I'm sure he made uh, a lot of money. 
The disciples are a great window into the kinds of people that Jesus called to himself in order to lead his movement, which is to say that flawed, imperfect human beings who have quirks and shortcomings were the people that Jesus chose to lead his movement. And Peter was textbook flawed. I mean, he was a great leader and all, but someone he was also someone who was consistently reactionary and hot-tempered. And he definitely embodied this idea of the Peter problem. And, and what I see as the Peter problem is the way that Peter embodied this deeply human trait and longing to be seen as great, or, or at least to not be seen as somebody who failed. And we see this all the time in Peter's life. Do you guys remember when Jesus is predicting his own death and Peter rebukes Jesus for doing so? And Peter's like, no, Jesus, you will never die like this. And Jesus is kind of shocked. And in this moment, he's like, look, get behind me, Satan, which is a pretty intense rebuke of Peter. But I think Peter struggled hearing that Jesus wouldn't be triumphant in the way that Peter longed and hoped for, perhaps through his strength or through overpowering Rome. There was another occasion right before Jesus' crucifixion where Peter boldly declares that he would never reject Jesus, that even if all the other disciples (laughs) reject Jesus, he is never going to do it. And again, I think he's trying to be seen as somebody who wouldn't fail Jesus. Even if everybody else was going to fail him, he would not fail. And then obviously we know that all the disciples are having these conversations amongst themselves, you know, asking who is the greatest amongst all of us, to which you have to believe that Peter was right in the middle going, guys, it's me. Look no further. Here I am. Even Paul later on gets upset with Peter when Peter is eating with the Gentiles when the Jews are not around, but then basically retreating to only eat with the Jews when the Jews are around because he was afraid of what the Jews would think of him for eating Gentile food, which was not allowed in Judaism. And so this idea of image and prominence, position, greatness, these are things that are natural parts of our humanity to long for. If if not like on a global scale, then certainly on some smaller communal scales, we long for these things. We tend to ask ourselves questions like, what legacy do do you want to leave? What do we want to be known for? And these are not bad questions at all. They're just simply a part of our human nature to long to be remembered. And yet, at times, I think this common piece of our humanity causes us to sort of shrink away and even at times scoff at some of the teachings of Jesus that call us to set aside those tendencies and pursue the way of Jesus. Because honestly, sometimes pursuing the way of Jesus is not as sexy as making a name for ourselves. And see, to me, this is what the Peter problem was. Because As I understand Peter, he will often struggle with some of what Jesus says and did because it wasn't what Peter hoped for, for Jesus, or I think for himself. And Jesus will have to kind of consistently remind Peter, no, this is what I am about. Here is what I am about. So it has to also be what you are about, Peter. I want us to look at a story from John chapter 13. I'm sure most of you who are listening will know what this story is. This is where I want us to camp for a few minutes. Uh, But this is just before Passover and Jesus is having a meal with his disciples and he begins to wash their feet. So I want to read from John chapter 13, starting in verse two. It says, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. 
So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped the towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, you are not going to wash my feet. Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. I just want to pause here for a little bit. Foot washing was almost universally known to be the job of slaves or servants at this time. And so roads were dirty and dusty and people wore sandals, which meant that they would have pretty gross, nasty feet. And a lot of times when people would arrive at someone's home, especially the home of somebody prominent, the house servant would then wash the guest's feet. Because remember, typically at meals like this, you were laying on your side next to people, which meant that there was the potential that these nasty, gross feet would be near your food or your face. And so Jesus does something really important in this moment in that he does something that no other host would ever do. First and foremost, he disrobes, which is already something that the host probably wouldn't do. But then he wraps a towel around himself and he washes everyone's feet during the meal. Essentially fully assuming and taking on the position and posture of the servant from from the attire to the activity of the servant. Now here's the thing about this passage. Remember how we've said many, many times at Missio that the easiest uh, plain text reading, and I was using quotation fingers around plain text reading of scripture, almost always gets translated through a 21st century ethnocentric American lens. I think we like to assume that a plain text reading somehow makes us impervious to all of the flaws of misinterpretation because we're just simply reading what is there on the page. But that almost always causes us to read in our own culture, our own values and assumptions and presuppositions into the text. The harder work is to pull ourselves out of our own context in order to submerge ourselves within the context of the people in Scripture to better understand what is happening and why it's happening for them. And a lot of times I think we look at this passage as Jesus like showing this, this great servant leadership which I think is partially true, but also not his point in what he is doing. See, in in this one intimate meal with his disciples, Jesus is showing what what is about to happen for all of humanity. And so the last third of John's gospel are kind of the last few days leading up to the crucifixion. And, And Jesus is showing his disciples in this moment that he is fulfilling what Paul described later in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus would lower himself to the level of servant of all people, so much so that he would then die for all of humanity. And see, this, this moment of foot washing is actually a foreshadowing of what is about to happen. That again, he is taking on that role of servant in the moment for the good of his disciples so that they can have clean feet for the meal. And that in a matter of hours, he would then take on that role of servant for all people, to lift all of humanity up. But then there's something unique that takes place specifically between Jesus and Peter. And so Jesus gets to Peter's feet, and Peter defiantly declares, no way, Jesus, not my feet. You're not washing my feet. And I think this has less to do with Peter being concerned about his like overly dirty feet. There's something else behind Peter's response to 
Jesus's attempted foot washing moment. If you guys remember, in ancient Judaism, there existed this relationship between a rabbi and what is called the Talmud. And Talmud is not to be confused with Talmud, which is a rabbinic Jewish text. Talmud just simply meant student or disciple. And so a rabbi would take on a young Talmud and would essentially train him and teach him and disciple him to become as much of the exact image of the rabbi as was possible. From things like mannerisms to the ways that they read and thought about scripture to how they ate to how they did everything. The goal of the Talmud was to become the very image of the rabbi. And this Rabbi-Talmud relationship was often initiated by the Talmudim. Talmudim, again, just means the child that was the student. And so the rabbi would either agree to this or not agree to this. And this was a pretty huge deal for a child to choose the person that they wanted to essentially become in their life. Because basically, once you chose a rabbi, then it became your life to follow that person into whatever they led you into. You know, I, I've always found it fascinating that Jesus so often reverses so much of what takes place in the ancient world. Again, Jesus is the rabbi of rabbis, and yet he doesn't wait for people to come to him to ask him to be their rabbi. He went to people, right? He goes to each of the disciples and calls them into this rabbi Talmudim relationship. And so when Jesus approaches Peter in Matthew chapter 4 and says to him, come follow me, both Jesus and Peter understood what that meant. That Jesus was inviting Peter into a rabbi Talmudim relationship where Peter would give up everything that he had attained in life in order to fully embody and become Jesus in every way. I mean, just think about this moment. Do you guys remember this moment? I was always a little bit confused why Peter and Andrew would just like decide to leave everything and immediately follow Jesus in the moment. But it's, I think because they understood the depth and nature of this Rabbi Talmudim relationship, and they understood that Jesus was about to embark on something incredible, something beautiful and somewhat unimaginable, and they wanted to be a part of that. See, they had heard that Jesus was the Messiah, and in their minds, if there was even a chance that he actually was, then of course you would leave everything in that moment to ride the wave of greatness that came along with being the Talmudim of the Messiah. Now, I don't want to imply that all of their motives were bad for following Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But I do tend to think that there was this kind of thinking in the back of their minds as they were being invited into this Rabbi Talmudim relationship with the Messiah. And countless times through Peter's Talmud relationship with his rabbi, with Jesus, Peter has ideas of what that is supposed to look like, who Jesus is supposed to be, and what he would be coming be becoming as his Talmud. Remember, everybody believed the Messiah would look and be quite different than what he actually looked and was. And if Peter's job as a Talmud was to copy and emulate everything that Jesus did and taught, then this moment of servanthood where Jesus is washing his feet becomes an issue for Peter. Because again, remember, Peter wanted Jesus to be known for his greatness and strength which is why he rebukes Jesus when Jesus says that he will be killed. 
because that isn't what a conqueror or a king does. Peter wants Jesus to be great because I think as a part of Peter's humanity, Peter wanted Peter to be great. And he knew that in order for him to become great, he needs his rabbi to also be great so that he could emulate and copy that greatness. Remember, rabbis were often the most well-respected, revered, and honored people in the Jewish communities. But not only that, again, the Messiah was talked about and anticipated by the people for generations upon generations. And I think this is what Peter also desires for himself. Even if it's just a small enough part of him that he would become offended, that Jesus would presume to act in any other way opposite of what greatness demanded. And so he sees Jesus, who was the host of this Passover meal, the Messiah come to save Israel, the great rabbi who heals and has the power to walk on water. And he sees this rabbi stripped down, put on the clothes of a servant and do the very act that only a servant would do. And he puts his hand to his forehead and he's like, not this again, Jesus. You're supposed to be great. Stop doing what is perceived in our world as less than greatness, less than what the Messiah is supposed to do. You won't wash my feet, Jesus. No way. To which Jesus answers, if I don't do this for you, then you will have no part of me. And Peter is like, oh, well, if that's the case, then wash everything, Jesus. And Jesus is like, all right, Peter, it's not bath time. We got to move on from this. And so then Jesus ends the moment by saying, you call me teacher and Lord, which is right. And I love this because he's basically telling him, look, I am your rabbi. So listen up. (laughs) He says, if your rabbi is doing this, then you also need to be doing this for one another. For no servant is greater than his master. So there's a ton of stuff that's happening in this. Jesus is trying to get Peter to understand that servanthood isn't a posture of leadership. It's a posture of servanthood. It's a posture of Christ-likeness. I I tend to think the reason that servant leadership has had a bit of a bad rap these days is because it tends to be viewed as a form of activity done to ultimately still get what I want, which is your submission to my leadership. And so I'm willing to serve you so that you ultimately just do what I tell you to do. And this is really important because service and being a servant, I don't think is actually the issue here. The issue is the motivation. It's the motivation that matters. See, motivations can be either good or bad. And honestly, whether motivations are good or bad, they can still lead to the results that you're looking for, right? But I think the difference is in what that causes you to do along the way. I'm sure I'm sure you've heard the term that the ends justify the means, which is basically saying it doesn't matter how I achieve my goals as long as I get there. So if I'm motivated to win and I have this mentality, then it doesn't matter if I stomp on everyone along the way and push people down and leave a pile of bodies in my path because I got the results that I was after. And I tend to believe that this is what we see in churches that kind of have this overall goal of like statistical growth, just getting more people attending on Sunday. And I think what happens is that we call people to serve and to give more and more of themselves for the sake of growing numbers and not really concerning ourselves with whether or not we are crippling people and abusing their generosity. 
Jesus actually talks about this kind of self-motivated orientation in Matthew chapter 6 when he talks about prayer and fasting and wealth. And he says, look, don't be like the hypocrites who do these things for for show or for self-glorification because that's not what it was meant for. Jesus then again warns the people not to be like the Pharisees who are doing all these things so that they can be seen to increase their, their platform and their personal influence and power. And he says, stop it. Stop being this way. Our motivation matters. See, when our service, serving, when servanthood is motivated by creating a platform, either for the pastor or the church, then we are fundamentally missing the nature of Jesus' servanthood. Jesus washed the disciples' feet in this moment for two main reasons. First, it was to clean the feet of the people that he loved so that this moment that they were sharing together would be better. (laughs) It was to lift them up and improve this meal with them. But the second reason was to remind them of what was about to happen as Jesus would do the very same thing for all of humanity, whom he also loved, as he would become the servant of all people, lifting all people up to make things better. And he used that moment to further teach Peter this incredibly important point about servanthood, that being a servant has to be motivated by bringing goodness to other people's lives. That is our motivation. When the motivation of our service is to increase our numbers, increase our influence, increase our control, then we have warped what servanthood truly is, and it no longer reflects Jesus's servant nature. When Jesus's disciples are arguing about who is the greatest, what do you think Jesus says? Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 through 28 says, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, I think there is an imbalance that happens often in churches where we have this idea that that evangelism has to be attached to every act of service or goodness that we do in this world. That if we fail to give a gospel presentation or provide an invitation to worship on Sunday, then our acts of service and goodness are wasted because those people may never become a part of our church if we don't. And if I can just be honest for a moment, this idea to me has a lot more to do with statistics and growth strategies than it does about becoming the very nature of Jesus' servanthood as a church family. Again, the posture of Jesus as servant was to lift humanity up. He lowered himself to the posture of servant so that he could lift humanity up into a relationship with God. It's the most selfless moment of human history. And so often our calling is people trying to live into the image of Jesus, to emulate and copy his activity should lead us to bring goodness to people's lives simply because it lifts them up. Because in that act of of lifting others up, we're actually giving them the most genuine image of Jesus himself. It's the most Christ-like moment that they will probably ever receive. And no, this doesn't mean that we also won't tell them the reason or utilize those reasons and say why we are doing what we are doing. The truth of our love for Jesus should always be on our lips. But here's the thing, the motivation for how and why we serve has to come from our desire to do as Jesus did, to follow in his way, to do goodness simply because that is what Jesus did. 
If you remember the Acts chapter 2 community, this newly formed church, they're following Jesus's teaching. They, they ate together numerous times, right? And it says that they bore each other's burdens. They served one another. And that serving of each other then extended to serving the communities around them, which then caused them to obtain the favor of all the people in their community. And then what does Acts chapter 2 verse 47 say happened as a result of selflessly serving their own people and the communities around them? It says, and the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The Lord The community served one another first and foremost, and then that culture of serving then extended to serve the communities around them. See, we envision Missio being a church that serves the need of the people in this community, in this church, right? And the the people in the communities around us. Service and serving, to me, is not an internal versus an external proposition. It's about creating a culture of seeing the people around us, both in this church and the people all around us, and responding according to their needs in the moment. You know, in later teachings, we're going to talk more about our role and responsibility to preach and to teach and invite and do that work of evangelism, but we so often lump evangelism and service together, and that we miss how we can sometimes create churches that use serving as a means to increase our influence and position in the world, which is just fundamentally not what service and servanthood and being a servant was ever intended to be. Being a servant looks at the condition of the people around us and then searches for ways to lift people up because that is what Jesus did and continues to do for us. I think we all at times have the Peter problem. We want to know how does this benefit me? Will I become known? Will my influence and platform grow because of this? How will our church grow because of this? And I think Jesus is speaking to all of us saying, look, if you don't follow me into the very nature of servanthood, then you honestly, you can't have any part of me. And I don't think that Jesus was being mean by saying that. He was just saying, you're not going to have any part of me because my very nature, the place that you will find me, is in the trenches with people working to lift them up and out. And so if you want more of me, then jump in because I'm not leaving. And see, this is to me the true nature of servanthood. Service. Servanthood, serving others is about Jesus' followers allowing the tove of God, the best of heaven, to flow through us into the lives of the people around us for their good. You know, we talked about how we want to leave some very tangible kind of action steps or ways that we participate in these teachings for the next couple of months. And so at Missio, we view serving in kind of three concentric circles. And that first circle is around each of you and your families individually. And so we want the culture of Missio to be one where we live into this servanthood in our lives, in our neighborhoods, schools, communities, soccer teams, gyms, and so much more, right? And so how are you all serving as a family, as as an individual in your spheres of influence. But the second sphere is in at the Missio community level. And we've talked about how we're going to be serving a little bit differently this year with our Missio communities. Instead of each Missio community coming up with their own serves on a monthly monthly basis, we're going to have two designated places to serve. One at North Haven uh, Retirement Center in Northgate doing bingo with um, the people, the residents there. And then one at the U District Food Bank 
on the weekends, filling some shifts there to help them out. And so we want to, to discover how we can serve as Missio communities. And those aren't the only ways that you can serve as a Missio community, but we want to broaden it from just serving as individual families or individuals to on a, on a small group level. And then that final circle is how we serve as a church. And this happens both in how we give our, of our finances, um, but also how we do things like yard cleanup Sundays or doing the cold weather drive for the homeless with UGM or serving at James Baldwin Elementary, which used to be called uh, Northgate Elementary. And so in all of those concentric circles of serving, what we're interested in is bringing the goodness of God and his beauty to our city. Some of these opportunities that we're going to serve in will have the opportunity to attach our name to it, to attach Missio's name to it. Many of them, we're not going to be able to attach our name to it because we don't need to, and that's not the point. But we believe that being a servant of this city is about seeing what is in front of us and working to lift people up. I read a really great quote as we end from a friend of mine who is a pastor in a church in Providence, Rhode Island. And he said that as Christians, we are called to be a force for positive change in the world, but in a way that is beautiful and winsome. And I love that, that, that statement. And, and I would just add to it because that's just simply what Jesus did. And it doesn't sound as good if you add that to it. But I love that. Christians are called to be a force for positive change in the world, but in a way that is beautiful and winsome. Servanthood. And serving is one of the greatest ways that we can live the way of Jesus for the good of the people around us. So let's be a church where our motivation to serve as a family comes from the very image of Jesus. Uh, Thank you for listening, everyone. I hope you have a wonderful week. Bye.